Well, good evening again. Um, there's just a couple things I need to say. So first of all, yes, thank you so much to the kitchen crew and all the hospitality that we've enjoyed here at Bethany. And uh, I speak for the rest of the visitors. You've, you've done, well, you've been like Christ to us. What can we say? There's not a greater compliment that can be made. A couple other matters of housekeeping I'd like to uh, mention to you. Um, the first one is um, the Believer's Bible Conference. That's also known as the Rise Up Conference. And this year, it, it, will be, it has been suspended for about three to four years. We're bringing it back. It will be in Texas, in a place called Denton, Texas, which is uh, north of Dallas. It's seven and a half hours from Kansas City. If you drive like me, it's probably 10 hours from here. Probably not 10 hours from here. Uh, but um, it's uh, December 27th through the 30th. And the theme is uh, One Body, One Life. And we'll be talking about the unity we have in the body of Christ, especially in light of all that we've been through with being isolated with COVID and coming back here and coming back there and all that we've been through. And so there will be, like your conference here, seminars, except we'll have about 15 or 20 of them. We'll have children's meetings featuring some of our chalk artists in the region. And, uh, and we'll have young people's events in the evening. Uh, we'll have uh, many different speakers there. If you've never been to a Rise Up conference, I highly recommend you go and enjoy the time there. Um, uh, it's... it's uh, December 27th through the 30th, and I believe if you Google Believer's Bible Conference, you'll be able to find all the information. Um, the second uh, uh, matter that I wanted to mention was uh, just this uh, uh, next week, <laughs> I'll be at the Atlantic Conference, and people ask me, will these be the same messages? Probably not. They'll be maybe the same theme, but different attributes of God. So that if you visited the conferences I was in in Iowa this, this summer and spring, you would get all 12 attributes of God that we would talk about. So that might be where the Lord's leading me. I can't say for sure. And uh, lastly, I'd like to mention to you um, uh, one of the, there's a couple things. There's uh, Phil Boom is here from Emmaus Bible College. And Many of you know Emmaus Bible College, and, and uh, I think it's a great institution. Um, we have those here from Tepsi, uh, uh, J.C. Schroeder, another great training program. And there's a training program for the older uh, person, the 25 and above or so person at Discipleship Intern Training Program. All those are well worth your energy and time to investigate, and I think they're well worth the... Uh, the sacrifice made uh, to have some concentrated time in studying the Word of God. All right, let's begin with prayer. Father, um, it, I, I can hear my, my voice, and, or I can hear my name before the throne of God above. And, and I would have expected to hear the accuser demand for my soul. But all I hear is the chief justice of the universe pound the podium of the great court of heaven and say, my sins are remembered no more. I want to thank you for that. 
I can only remember a few of my sins and I'm mortified of those. What if I could remember them all? You can remember them all, but you choose not to because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, you're so good. You are so good. Bless us with your presence. Bless us with your spirit. Add goodness upon goodness this evening. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've been talking about the attributes of God. Can I move this microphone? Is that okay? Okay, good, because I'll knock it over, trust me. Um, We've been talking about the attributes of God, and if you weren't able to be here last night and this morning, the whole premise of our discussion is based on this uh, idea that that many a a Christian is taking sort of a beating about about, uh, who God is. And things are being said, uh, for example, in the realm of the neo-atheist that are are very caustic to our God, very caustic uh, about his reputation, very damaging or supposedly damaging to to his, uh, to his presentation. And, uh, and, and many of us as Christians, we would say, well, you know, we know that's not true. But yet at the same time, in a moment of stress, in a moment of deep dis- uh, 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 pain or suffering, some of those things that we hear said about our God creep into our minds and we sort of have a question mark that develops. And so we began talking uh, initially, uh, we began Friday night, and let me see, that topic was about the righteousness of God. And we really wanted to start there because I, I needed us to understand that there is a sense in which God has perfect prerogative to do what he does, to make the laws of what defines right and wrong his way. I mean, don't you think he should do that? He made everything. So it's, it's right, it's, and quite honestly, it's, you would say it's his responsibility. And so he preserves, he, he defends, he preserves, and he maintains those standards. And then we, we began this morning, and we talked a little bit about, uh, what did you talk about this morning? The, that was the righteousness? Oh, what was last night? Omnipresence, yes. How can, you know, the presence, does God get omnipresence? Yeah, sure. Uh, and we talked about that aspect of God, and we, we, we sort of uh, included this idea of, of um, omniscience and omnipotence, but just bra- barely mentioning them. We'll mention them again tonight. But uh, the omnis of God, the allness of God, if you will, it sort of uh, uh, smatters in this concept of God and his infinity, that there is no limit to God. There's just, there's just no measurement that can be put upon him. There's no scale that can weigh him. There's no uh, mileage that we can assign him. He's infinite. And we looked at that from the idea of the omnipresence of God. Now this evening, we're going to be looking at a concept called God's goodness. Now this is a very important theme that's trickled throughout the entire Bible And tonight when we get to the end of the message and we talk about Joseph, you're going to see that theme sort of drizzled across the the robust flavor of God's word. I want to introduce it by quoting a movie. Now, for those of you who take homiletics or no homiletics, I have committed homiletical suicide by referencing a movie just now. Amen. That's not what you're supposed to say, Brandon. Now, 
The movie I'm going to reference is, of course, God's Not Dead. Have you seen that movie? Yeah, yeah. And in that movie, I think it's the first one, in fact, they, they have the two. The one fellow is from Africa, and the other is obviously from America. He's very white. And so, so the one fellow from Africa, or the one fellow from America, he's like a, the pastor of the church, and, and he's just having a hard day, and everything seems to go the wrong way. You know, kind of like when you're trying to get to church on Sunday morning and every light is red. And it's not just red for a second, it's like red for three minutes. And no one's coming. Does that drive anybody else batty besides me? I know my wife is praying for that because she's putting on her makeup. You know. Now, now I have to tell you that in that movie, the things are going badly for the, for the pastor fella. And the guy from Africa says this line all the time, and maybe you know it. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Did you, do you remember that line? How, how many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, a few of you. You should see it tonight. And this graphic is supposed to d demonstrate that. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. And, and there's the house, and it's still standing from that massive incident here, right? Now, it's, what's funny to me is when we were in Africa, the, the four fellows and I were in Africa, um, I, I gave a message like this. Do you remember this, Gabe? <laughs> and I started off talking about this phrase, this sort of famous quote, if you will, and I said, I don't know if you remember this part, Gabe, or Luke, or who else is here? Casey. I said, uh, I said maybe you know the, the phrase, God is good all the time. And the entire, remember that? The entire African Ken, uh, Kenyan uh, population said, and God, or God is God, all the time God is good. Or God is good all the time. They go, and uh, all the time God is good. They did it all in unison. Blew me over, right? It was just like, oh, you've seen the movie. They said, no, it's true. <laughs> I'd like to talk about that this evening. And what we're going to do, our, our outline is pretty simple. We'll first of all look at the definitions of the word, and then we're going to relate it to the quality of goodness. We'll be talking about some of the aspects of God's uh, uh, um, uh, uh, character and goodness, some of the aspects of God's trinity in terms of goodness. And then we're going to end with a sort of a long rendition or a semi-long rendition of the life of Joseph, and I want you to trace the goodness of God in his life and his conclusion, and then we'll end this evening, hopefully, at the right appointed time. Now, let's get into the definition here. Let's see, I do this backwards all the time. I think I go that way, right? How about I just hit that button? Much better. All right. I got it, Patrick. Nahum 1.7, all right? Now, what we're going to do is we're just going to establish some of the definitions that we can do from the original languages that we have available to us. So Nahum is where you want to be. And I'll read it with you. Now, I had the advantages of marking my scriptures in the Bible, so I'm, I'll win every sword drill this evening. Oh. All right, so it says here in this, in this prophet's language, remember he was uh, burdened to speak about Nineveh. Not only Jonah ministered to Nineveh, but so did Nahum. And he says this, the Lord is good. You see that word? A stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who trust in him. Now, this is an important sort of little excerpt I'm taking out of the text. The context is, of course, Nineveh and their rebellion and subsequent judgment that Nahum was predicting. But the word simply means beneficial, right? When someone's good to you, it has the idea that that, that person benefits you. This evening, we were... We were getting, or at lunch in this evening, we were getting ready to, to clean up, and, and somebody grabbed my plate, an empty plate, not a full plate, that would be bad if it was a full, and an and empty plate, and, and they took it to the, to the garbage for me. That was to my benefit, was it not? Oh, I'm having so much trouble. That was to my benefit, was it not? And in so doing, I enjoyed the luxury of just sitting still. I tried to reproduce that with another brother and, and just being nice, if you will. That's what we mean sometimes when we say, well, someone's so good, aren't they? They're such a good person. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, they do nice things. They're just, they're just nice people. But also goodness can mean pleasant. Pleasant is, is not so much the duties that you do, but it's just your demeanor, just your disposition. Many of us in this room need a gallon of coffee to be nice in the morning. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I see a few hands. It's not really a gallon, it's like a whole gallon or 200 gallons. You know. I, I get that and I understand that. My wife has a coffee cup. It says at the top, don't talk to me. It says in the middle, you may speak in short sentences. And it says at the bottom, you may now speak. You get it? And she needs two of those to get to that level, you see. But you know, pleasantness is something that, that we have to work at on sometimes, like a, a morning hour of the day. There are some people who are just pleasant all the time. They're just happy. They make me sick. <laughs> I love you, but I don't know how you do it. And you do it without coffee. Oh, my goodness. Just really nice dispositions. It's raining cats and dogs. You got to go out there. You got to get in the car. The snow, and the snow is coming down. And they're just happy. And it's a great day. No, it's not. Have a nice one. Bye. <laughs> Sometimes the idea can be favorable. Just that not only are you do good deeds, or not only do you have a pleasant position, but you just really have an eye of favorability to it. You just, just kind of watch out for them. You know, there's many young people in my life, we watch out for our children for sure, and sometimes we, we extend that sort of family friendship and care to others outside our immediate family, and that person just knows somebody's watching out for you. That from my life, in my life, that was my dad, he watched out for me. It was John Heller. He watched out for me. You see, we have those people in our lives that just sort of, like we got a soft spot. They have a soft spot for us. And whatever happens, they, they sort of got our back. You know, that's good, is it not? Uh, it means to be well, happy, joyful. We, we've covered that. Uh, to do what's right. You see, goodness has an idea of rightness too, that you're not doing that which is evil or the opposite. You're doing that which is good, and usually that's the right thing to do. <laughs> I have so many examples of what's not good. Maybe I'll give you one of those to illustrate this. Um, it was a couple, it was about 10, 15 years ago, I was headed to Japan to preach at a conference. That time I was 
in my early 40s, and I, I had just started to end up traveling a whole lot. And so one of them was to Japan. And my parents were going to take me, and they were going to introduce me to the assemblies there. Believe it or not, there's about 130 assemblies in Japan. Some of them are, are quite large, and some are quite small. We're standing at the ticket counter in Kansas City, and my parents are up there, and I'm up there, and this lady is just at the counter next to us. And she, she looked a little bit green, you know, like I've never done this before. And one of the things you learn in travel is always watch where you're walking, right? Because somebody could leave their stinking suitcase right in front of you. And somebody left their golf bag right in front of her, and she tripped over and went splat. And it was not pretty. I mean, splat. And she sat up, and, she, and I, it's a blood. And I'm going, oh, boy. What am I going to do? If I help you... I could miss my flight. If I don't help you, that would be kind of bad. And while I'm weighing this act of goodness in my heart, this guy comes up and he says, Hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Can I help you? And I'm standing 10 feet away and I'm going, You're such a lousy Christian. It's a long flight to Japan, you see. That's my negative example of not doing what's right. right? The, the, short, the, the end of that story is really funny. I had such a wrestling match with God on the flight to Japan, I got no sleep. And um, I landed and preached the messages with all this conviction. And I prayed to God on the way home. I said, Lord, if you ever give me that opportunity, would you please help me to do what's good in that moment? not weigh if it's going to be in my advantage or not. About 10 years later, I'm in the uh, Atlanta airport, and I'm going down this escalator. Now, if you've ever been to the Atlanta airport, those escalators, they seem like they go down to Sheol. Okay? They go a long way down. Okay? And I'm riding that thing. I got my bags and my stuff, and I'm just like kind of zoning out. And I hear this lady behind me go, ah! And I hear a ka-plunk, 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 ka-plunk. And that whole scene 10 years ago flashes through my brain. And I said to the Lord, not this time. <laughs> and I book it down those airplane. I get over, I drop my stuff, say, watch my stuff, Lord. I run up and there's that lady. She sits up and boy, the whole, blood, the whole thing came back to me. And she smiles. I go, are you okay? She smiles. She's missing that front too. Like that. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I don't think so, ma'am. Don't move. So uh, the Lord gave me a chance to be good. <laughs> now, you'll never forget that definition. That's good. Okay, now, oops, I'm doing this backwards. Patrick, I'm messing up, man. Okay, so I want you to see, and, and now this reference that I'm so, uh, citing to you is a theological wordbook of the Old Testament. It's a handy work to have and to use if you're not familiar with Hebrew. It's Strong's Numbers related, but here's what they have. And this is what they call the semantic range. This is different um, shades of meaning that the word good in the Old Testament could have. Number one, practical or economical, materially good. You, know, you get a present. Um, you got a new car. It was a gift. 
something very practical, tangible. Number two, an abstract goodness, uh, such as being pleasant to be around, such a, 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 a sweet disposition that there is a, a sweetness. Even when you're tired, there's a sweetness to it. That's my wife. She's just good. Uh, she really is, is quite the walking version of the New Testament. And then there's a quality of goodness, a, a quality, and that sort of has a sense of um, just not, not just your pleasantness, but that you think from an eye of 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 benefiting the other person. You think from analysis, when you make a decision, it's not like I did at the airport of, well, this is gonna be of benefit to me or not. Will I be late or not? It, it's, it's, I'll just do it no matter the sacrifice. There's a, a quality of you. It's, a, it's sort of um, the, the, what, what you're known as. And then there's this sense of moral goodness where I'm, not, I, I'm out on alone and I, I won't uh, pursue that which is immoral because there's a, a good, morality, a quality of my morality that I won't violate. And then, of course, there's this philosophical idea of goodness. And I wasn't really sure what they meant by that, but I think it has the idea of I, I look at life from a good perspective. I have an outlook that presumes the best in other people. All those are shades of meaning that can be assigned to the Old Testament concept. But now let's look for a moment at the New Testament concept. And the New Testament concept would be in Luke 18, 18. So let's turn there. And this is that famous conversation the Lord Jesus had with, uh, with the, uh, I guess, the uh, Pharisees and even lawyers of his day. And this one, it's the rich young ruler, all right? So the rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus, and he says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, this is verse 18 of chapter 18, Good teacher! What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? I always thought that was interesting when the Lord said that. No one is good but one that is, but one that is God. So you know what he's saying, right? So if you're calling me good, and only one that is God can be called, me, can be called good, what are you really saying? You're calling me God? You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not be a bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've done from my youth, thank you very much. Oh, wow, you arrogant little twit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've taken care of it. I got those cha-ching off my list, okay? And what, what else you got? That's how the conversation goes. But let's go back to the idea of goodness, agathos, right? And the idea there is it's, it's of a moral character. Look at the things that he mentioned in the commandments. All those have direct relation to interpersonal morality. I don't kill you. That's kind of moral, all right? I, I don't commit adultery. That's definitely moral. I don't steal from you. I don't take your property. That's really moral. I don't lie about you. That's an interpersonal morality. I honor my father and mother. That's an interpersonal family dynamic. It's all very interpersonal. So there's idea, the idea here is character character that has a virtuousness to it, an uprightness to it, a character that depicts what? How God acts. Everything here is exactly how Jesus Christ acted. It was his code of, of doing things, and it's good. It's absolutely pristinely good. I can see the Lord Jesus getting the boys coffee in the morning. I can see the Lord Jesus getting up from the camp, uh, campfire that night and going down and getting fresh water for everybody because he's what, good? I can see the Lord Jesus making them breakfast. Why? Because he was a better cook. That's true. But he's also good. 
is also good. This morning, my host family, they got up and, and, and I could smell it. And, and old Bob there, he had like 54 patties of sausage. How much sausage is enough? Just one more. Right? And man, it permeated the house. I'm going, hey, Alfred, I think it's time for us to head to the kitchen. You know what I mean? They've been up. They were sacred. It was good. It was so good. You see, this is, I can see the Lord Jesus doing all of that. By the way, he did cook them breakfast, didn't he? John 21. Cooked them breakfast that morning. And it says in the text that he had hot bread. Where did he get the hot bread? It was only an open fire. It wasn't an oven. Well, Steve, he obviously just made it. Yeah, I know. How, how did he do that? He spoke it. Oh, okay, maybe, maybe. I don't know. But the point is he's making them breakfast and they've been fishing all night and he's filling their tummies. It's just good. It's just a good person. You see, that's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to represent. We're supposed to embody the idea of goodness that he is embodying, that he is portraying. To my shame... To my shame, one day I had worked with a person five years before and they then worked with me again five years later and I had just seen a patient rather curtly or, or, or abruptly and <laughs> she had a big voice, and big hair, and big everything. And, Dr. Price, you haven't changed a bit! And I knew exactly how I hadn't changed. There's no goodness in me. I was just as rude and inconsiderate as I've ever been. You see, that's not like the Lord Jesus. The man was respectful, even to Judas. Can you imagine if you knew Judas was going to knife you in the back three years from the day you met him? Would you, would you serve him first? You know, I'd probably put a little arsenic in his eggs. All right? Hey, how about a little mercury in them their, in them their fish, Okay. You just go over and eat them up. You want seconds? And that's what I do. But apparently the Lord Jesus thought so much of Judas, the liar, who lied to the face of Christ every day for over a thousand days. The Lord Jesus would give him the most honorable part of the feast, and he may have even washed his feet first. I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd wash those feet first. I'd be getting out the wire brush and the scouring pen and say, Hey, you got a little dirt under those nails. Oh, I'm sorry. We kind of made you bleed. <laughs> All that passive-aggressive garbage that we do in life, trying to get even at somebody, that's not goodness. And my Savior, I think, was the consummate representation of goodness at every moment and every positive and negative moment of his life. Now, that's my God. That's your God. Now let's let's move on. Life is too short for. Oh, go this way. This way. Creative goodness. We're switching from just the definition to the idea of creative goodness. Now, don't need to turn to this, but if you recall, in verse four, verse ten, verse twelve, verse eighteen, verse twenty-five of chapter one, God says, "Oh, this is good." And He made this. He made that. And He said, "This is good." said it several times, and, and it doesn't actually follow one good per day. 
Some days get two labels of goodness, one day gets no label of goodness. But the whole tenor, the whole theme, is that whatever God is creating is absolutely good. It's, it's, it's perfection. It's, it's, it's this quality about it. I just love that about God. Do you ever try to make something? And you, you, I love my wife. She's a great baker, a great cook. But she'll get into, she'll bring, she's such a perfectionist, and she'll make it and say, oh, it didn't work out. It's not good. I go over there, I taste it. I say, it's fantastic. What are you talking about? I'll eat your mistakes every day of my life. <laughs> but God, you know, he makes it. He looks at it and goes, oh, this, it's, a, it's good, you know. When I stitch people up, which I enjoy doing, I just fixed a fellow's finger on my kitchen counter. Don't worry, we sterilize my kitchen counter before you come over to eat, bro. It's, it's okay, don't you worry. But I remember, I remember one time I was fixing somebody on the kitchen counter, and the wound just wasn't coming together right. Where's Jerry? Do you know how that goes? It just doesn't come together right. And I, and I put like three or four stitches, and I go, oh, that's not good. Of course, <laughs> poor patient. What's not good? I said, the ear's crooked. I got to fix it. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't, I had to take all the stitches out because it wasn't good. My father, he doesn't do things like that. You know, God, he, he does it right the first time. And it has a perfect balance of all harmony that in one swoop of creative order, he makes the ecological system perfectly balanced so that all the animals are fed and watered and no one goes hungry. And at that time, they weren't carnivorous. They weren't eating each other. They were eating like grass and leaves and stuff. How did he do that? Well, this is just God. It's like he's got goodness dripping from his fingers and he massages the dough and oh, look, it's perfect. How about that? That's God. That's good. He's just good. Now, uh, it even says uh, that he made every tree grow and it was good. It was good for food. He did that. He, he, he made all the details right, too. Even the gold of the land was considered good. And when he got to the point of, of dealing with Adam, he said, well, it's not good for man to be alone. That wasn't a creative order mistake. He was commenting on after, after things were created, he identified that isolationism for the, human, for, the, for the male is not a good condition to exist in. And so what does he do? He makes woman. And man was so excited about woman, he used, he used the phrase, whoa, woman, which is, you know, kind of, in today's language, like, whoa, right? But back then in the Hebrew, it was actually a, a derivation of the word for man, and meaning that it came from you, and it did. It, she really did come from his side, and, and as you know, that's why women have 24 ribs and men have 23. That's not true. <laughs> if you believe that and you repeat that, don't tell you got it from me. Some people have 25 ribs. Some, some even have 26. And what do we call you? Weird. Okay, that's all. Now, what he said then after that point, after he made the woman, you know what he said? He said, oh, this is very good. I know, he, he ratcheted it up, huh? So what does that tell you about God? That in his creative order, he just is so good. He, he makes it 
perfectly balanced, perfect in its quality, perfect in its quantity, perfect in its interdynamic relationships, perfect in its intradynamic relationships. It's everything is absolutely brilliant. It's kind of like when, when, when you watch those shows and they, they like flip a house and they show you the before picture and it likes, oh, who's going to buy that dump? And then they, 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 they flip the house and everything is perfect. Then the new homeowner walks in and they got, you know, lights that come on when you breathe uh, some oxygen or something, and you this over here, and this over here, and you, ooh, ah, ooh. That's God's creativeness, and he does that by just speaking. Just speaking. This is your God. You need to understand this about God. He's, he's got this quality about him, and it shows up in his creative order, but it also is in his character. He names it as a part of his character. Now, I know it's raining, so don't worry. We'll get out on time. It'll be midnight, and that's when the concert will be over. I mean, what else you going to do, huh? All right, so Exodus is where you want to go. And this incident was um, on the heels or just after the, the uh, incident with the golden calf. Do you remember that? And I love Aaron. He says, I don't know what happened. I got all this gold together. I threw it in the fire, and this calf came out. How would that happen? Well, gee, I don't know, Aaron. Uh, he takes a beating on that, but actually he was kind of held responsible too. And then, and then uh, after all that happens, Moses does something extraordinary. He intercedes and offers himself to be blotted out of the book rather than the children of Israel. Oh my goodness, does that not smell the aroma of Christ to you? On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. That's what Abigail said to David. Does that not, does that not smell like Christ to you? Because on the cross, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That smells like Jesus Christ all over the place to me. And, what, and through that whole ordeal, uh, Moses asked to see the glory of God. He asked the presence of God to go with him. He won't leave unless the presence of God is with him. God acquiesces and gives him his presence. And Moses then says, can I see your glory? Wow. Moses got a lot of nerve. Moses, you're, I don't you think you're kind of over the top asking for too much. Well, no, he, he knew something about God. He knew that God was good because he's granting forgiveness to a categorically guilty group of people. So he says in 33, 19, he says that, Lord, or he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord. He says, oh, you want to see my glory? He says, instead of using the word glory, he says, I will make my goodness my goodness, you see how this is so inherent in who God is? And then when you get over to the actual event, which is in 34 verses 6 and 7, he says this. Uh, let's see, I'll begin reading in verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, and look at these terms, merciful, right? Merciful, what does that mean? That means this idea of fully, fully compassionate, gracious, this idea of granting favor and, and to someone in need, long-suffering, slow to anger is the idea of long-suffering, abounding in goodness. Now, the word uh, goodness there is actually uh, hesed, right? So this is the idea of um, God's sort of covenant-keeping love. It's very important when you read the covenant with Abraham, that's, it's, in, it's part of the terminology of the covenant. 
And when the children of Israel have their famous uh, little uh, uh, song that they sing, it's the mercy of the Lord endures forever. That's the word hesed. And so many times in the Old Testament, Old Testament, it's translated mercy, but many other times it's translated goodness because what God does is he remember, He makes a commitment to the party of the covenant and they don't have to do anything on their part. He assumes it all, which is unlike the Hittite vassal treaty that was made in those days. And what he would do is he would assume all responsibility to protect and guide and provide everything necessary for the other person who is less than them and the and the treaty and when that would happen it would be a merciful act but what they would get is not just emergency response system not just life insurance not just health insurance but there would be good spontaneous actions bestowed on the other party at any moment in time and in a spontaneous manner that's what God is saying that's how I'm going to do my goodness it's going to come not because I'm obligated because we have a contractual relationship but because I love you with all of my being and I will bestow upon you all that I have at my disposal and it just so happens that all that I have at my disposal is the goodness that I have in the storehouses of heaven and how do you like them apples well they taste pretty good it's called loyal love is usually how some of the newer translations like the ESV will talk about. Look at else, look at the other things he says about his character, goodness and truth, this idea of stability, uh, faithfulness, truthfulness, the idea of keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, pardon for sin. So how you have in this passage when, when Moses asked to, to see the glory of God, God begins with his goodness and he then describes multifacets of his character which is, of course, the reason why we're doing this series. When God wants you to know his name, he tells you about who he is. What, is that, what does that imply to us? That when we want to know God better, we better know who he is. And who he is is goodness. He, he is the idea of goodness. So when that movie quotes, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, it's great theology, isn't it? The problem with great theology is not defending it or defining it. The problem with great theology is remembering and practicing it. And that's exactly where the majority of us fall apart in our Christianity. That's exactly where we fall apart because the trial comes. The little girl gets appendicitis and is in the hospital for two months, is weak and tired, and you don't know if she's going to make it, that kind of thing. And you begin to doubt God's goodness. How many of you doubted God's goodness in this last year? Yeah, me too. Me too. My father-in-law took a spill it was so surreal. I pulled up our expedition for him to get in. He saw me coming. He was just having a happy day. Walked towards me. Weak side was on the downhill side. And he went down right in front of my truck. The lady saw it. I didn't see it. I didn't see him go down. I hop out. I see him on the ground. And he was injured. He was injured. He started moaning. For those of you in medicine, Glasgow Coma score was about 10, maybe 11. And I thought, oh no. And quickly he became back to normal. 
but he asked me all kinds of repetitive questions. I took him to the nurse's station. I started stitching up his hand. I was going to stitch up his face, and he started asking me who I was and what happened, and that was the 10th time I said, we need to take you in. Well, an hour later, we're in Jeff City, and he had this big subdural hematoma, or hematoma, excuse me, <laughs> hematoma. <laughs> it's medical language we use that. It kind of breaks up the seriousness, I don't know. And that was the beginning of the next hundred days for us. Many nights in the hospital, Janet had to stay in, in Columbia for the next 10 days or so. We got him moved to Kansas City. He was in the rehab for another two and a half weeks. And our lives totally got upside down really fast. We went from somebody who was self-sustaining to now needing um, intensive elder care. Many of you have done that, haven't you? And your life gets turned upside down. Maybe it's been worse, much worse, a debilitating stroke in a loved one, or maybe it's a crippling cancer, or maybe it's just, it's just getting older. And in those moments, you actually wonder, where's your goodness? Well, I'm here to tell you that the goodness of God doesn't get suspended because there's a trial. I'm here to tell you that the goodness of God does not get held back so you can suffer a lot. The goodness of God is always and ever eternally consistent whether you can see it or not see it. The existence of God's goodness does not depend upon your 2020 vision or its perception. The goodness of God is always present. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Oh, Steve, you're giving us that language that pretty much brainwashes the Christian. This is why we don't like Christianity, because you keep reciting to yourself all those little idioms, you idiot, so that you feel better about yourselves. Actually, you can't be more wrong. Let's look at it. I want to show you some of this here. The Trinity... All right. Now we know that, that God is before everything. He, he, in, he is infinity. He's eternal. Before the mountains were brought forth, ever you were formed from, you've been there from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, Psalm 102, 12 through 27, which we can't read tonight. You laid the foundations of the earth. They, uh, they will perish, but you are the same, for your years have no end. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he is eternal... And if goodness is part of his being, then guess what? Then his goodness also is eternal. His goodness is also in, in, of infinity. It has an infinitude to it. That is a matter of faith, Christian. It's not a matter of God proving it to you because he already noted that it's true. So the issue about God's goodness being suspended or held in bay to bring some sort of terrible punishment upon you has to erode in the face of something called faith. It demands that the Christian believe in the goodness of God no matter the circumstance and no matter the trial. That's exactly why you have Paul and Silas singing at midnight and Philip in a Philippian jailer, a jail after they've been beaten to an inch of their death. How about you? Many of us in this room have gone through horrific trials. 
Many of you have been tried to the, to the utmost, and you don't know if you're going to make it because they're still ongoing. The issue of God's goodness is a matter of faith because he's already said it's true about him in the word of God. That's what's at stake tonight, my friends. It's where you're going to put your confidence, even if you can't see it. Now, when we look at God's at the Trinity, he has this idea of omniscience. We talked about that, his all-knowingness. And therefore, if he is all-knowing, and if he is all-powerful, which you can see he, he does whatever he pleases in Psalm 115.3, he takes his all-knowing and his all-powerfulness, and it immediately bleeds over and intermingles with his goodness, which therefore means that his goodness has inherent in it all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom, and all of his power. But we don't believe that. Many a times we believe that God's goodness is only partial. It's only doled out in increments, like we're on, like we're on a, a fasting diet and, and he doesn't have enough goodness to go around. So you just get a little kiss here and you just little get a caramel there and that's all you get tonight. Enjoy. Bon appetit. That's not God. Satan wants you to think that about God. He wants you to think that God is stingy. Where God says he doesn't, he doesn't upbraid you, he doesn't scold you for asking in faith. But we think he does. We, we fall prey to these little jabs at God. Listen, that's not the Christian. That's not how we're supposed to be. The children of God should know their father. And the children of God should know their father so well that they will have an inherent trust in their dad, in their heavenly father. This was brought home to me with my, with my last one, Gracie. Now, I know what you're thinking. She's the last one of nine. She's probably spoiled. It's all true. <laughs> Just take that off the table. How do I know that? My other children tell me. Now, Gracie and I have a very unique relationship, right? And it's, it's, built on a, it's, it's built on trust, and she trusts my goodness. So one day, uh, she, she hands me the blanket. Do you have any little ones that have the blanket? You know, the blanket that if you lose, we better overturn all of humanity to find it, that blanket? Have you never had a blanket like that? Erica, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. You lose that blanket, you, just, you better have one in storage, right? Woo! So she has the blanket, okay? Now, the blanket is smelly because we never wash it because it would be out of her presence for too long. And so she asked me one day, and she, she, she hands it to me, if I may, she hands it to me, she hold my blanket, Daddy. I go, okay. And then she walks away and she goes, now don't lose it. I go, okay, okay. And I say, I, would, I won't lose it. She goes, I know, I trust you. She goes off and plays does her little thing, makes something, Play-Doh, Clay-Doh, whatever it is, comes back, does it, does, like nothing happened. Thanks for holding my blanket. You see, that little exchange is really how we're supposed to think about God, right? That you say to God, listen, uh, can you take care of this for me? Yeah, I'll take care of it. You know, we don't have to say, now don't forget, God's good, he's got it. But we treat him like he's got Alzheimer's. We treat him like he's got dementia. We treat him as if he is, he is haphazard, too busy, uh, distracted. God doesn't get distracted. He doesn't have trouble remembering your name. But God's good. Now, if he's omniscient and omnipotent and has that part of his infinitude, then, of course, 
God also takes his presence, which we talked about last night, which I forgot. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If he is everywhere, if he has this ability to exist in all elements of space and time, and God's goodness is attached to his omniscience and his omnipresence and and all-powerfulness, then listen, that means that his goodness is present all the time. You don't divorce the characteristics of God from one another. They always intermingle at 100% rate and 100% of the time. And so you know, therefore, that whatever aspect of God's character is, it applies to all the other aspects of his character. Whatever facet is there, it applies to all the other aspects of his character. Therefore, his goodness is always powerful, it's always with full knowledge, and it's always present. That is a matter of faith, Christian. That is a matter of where you see it in God's word and you believe it like you believed on Christ the day you were born, born again. The facts are there. The evidence is supportive. The word is true. Believe it. That's our biggest problem. Now, when we, when we get to this point, we have trouble believing the gifts of God. And James, if you turn there for me, James chapter 1, verse 17 I think we're doing okay on time, so don't panic, Dave. Don't panic. I will tell you when to panic. <laughs> I always wanted to say that. Okay. James 1.17, read this with me. Now, it begins by this really interesting statement. Do not be deceived. What does that tell you? That it is very possible for the Christian to believe the wrong thing about God. That phrase in James, do not be deceived, it's not the first time. It's multiple times in the, in the book of James, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my, breth- my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift, those are equatable in that line, is from above. Do you know what that means? Satan doesn't give good gifts. Don't be fooled. The only, good, the only source of good gifts, the only source of perfect, that is, to complete gifts, is heaven, where the Father lives, meaning they come from the Father. And notice it says, with whom there is no variation. In other words, God doesn't change from that, that standard of who he is. The goodness of God doesn't fluctuate. The goodness of God doesn't have moments of, of, of power outages. The goodness of God is so intricate with his being that he cannot help but give good gifts. How many of you ever had a Christmas time where you gave a gift and you really thought they'd like it? And they go, ah, this is so nice. What is this? I don't know what this is. They're smiling. They're laughing, but in your heart you go, you have no idea, do you? I tell you a funny story. It was many years ago. You have to understand a couple things. My mother was Japanese. She's passed now. She's Japanese. Now, Japanese are really good at being so sweet, smiling, acting like everything's okay, and they have no idea what's going on, right? And my mom, my, my dad. Now, my dad, he's like the ultimate practical farmer you've ever met. 
So back in that day, they get, they, they would, uh, the, the thing to wear was boots. You know, little ladies would wear the boots up to, you know, here. Kind of like today. And so some knucklehead came up with this idea that if you get this plastic gizmo and you put it inside the boot, it'll expand and you can hang the boot up on the hanger. What a stupid idea. But they made money for it. And only in America. So my dad got her like six sets of these things. All right? My poor mother. On Christmas morning. It's like getting her a vacuum cleaner, right? Dual bag, you know? Gets this, and, and she holds it up, you know? And she goes, oh, I love it. I love it. I said, what is it? And my brother and I, we're dying. We're going... She doesn't know what it is. I don't know what it is either. Isn't that crazy? That's, you know, those are the kind of things that God doesn't do. God doesn't give you a gift. And, and you know, you know, is this good? Now, what Satan wants you to think is that God messed up in the order. Amazon does it better than God. That's what the world, that's what Satan wants you to think. Now, I know what you're saying. How can my stage four cancer be good? That's when you remember that behind that goodness is the all-powerfulness of God, the all-knowing of God, the all-wisdom uh, and, and uh, the all-presence of God that can then take what you think is stage four disaster and actually turn it in to something unimaginably good. Let me give you the Wilder family. Now that's a story of great goodness. How many of you have ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? You know her story, right? As a teenager, she dove off a, a little thing and broke her neck and was paralyzed instantly. She wanted to end her life several times, but she didn't. And today she has a worldwide ministry where a broken neck lady is used of God to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who would have thought that God's goodness could do that? Well, at the time you couldn't. But the all-powerfulness of God, the all-knowledge of God, the all-presence of God, is still in play. And he works together and weaves things in such a dramatic, unimaginable fashion. So what is your story tonight? What is your story? Is it one of tragedy? One of seeming disability? One of brokenness, of, of family, of a wrecked home, and a father or mother that's been unfaithful, a divorce situation? What's your story I give you Christ tonight. I give you the goodness of God tonight. And I unequivocally announce to you that the word of God has said God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. It's a matter of faith, Christian. It's a matter of faith. Not faith in some sort of imagination but in the word that he spoke. Let's look at this tonight just briefly in our closing segment from the life of Joseph. Joseph is, comes from what we would call today a dysfunctional family. Oh, there are lots of children, 
There was uh, uh, 12 boys, in fact. But it was kind of a hard family because 10 of the sons hated Joseph. You know what we call that? Not fun dinner times. Right? And, and, and mom and dad, that was interesting too. You see, the way it worked out was dad, that would be Jacob, he lied to his father on two separate occasions. And one of those occasions, he lied to grandpapa with mama helping out, with grandma, help, uh, with grandma helping out. That's what we call a dysfunctional family. Do you think you have a dysfunctional family? Do you think you have a family that is starting out on the wrong side of the ethical, moral, and spiritual tracks? Do you think you have a family that has taken the wrong turn down the course of life and you are a victim on that train and you're suffering for the decisions of those before you? I give you Joseph. And he, he not only had that in his parents and grandparents and all that interrelationship, but he had that with his brothers. He had that with his first degree relatives. And you know the story well. I'll only mention a few parts that are germane to it. As I said, he was hated by his family. He, he, he had dreams, and, and these dreams had prophetical um, implications, and he related them to his family. They all were mad at him. They're all mad at him because in those dreams, all the other family members would be serving and bowing before him. And at that time, you know, he was the youngest runt in the, in the litter. How many of you are the youngest in your family? Yeah, me too. Can you imagine when you're you know, 12 years old going up to everybody. Hey, guess what? One day you're going to be working for me. <laughs> and you smile real big. You think they're going to be happy. And they're going, you little dweeb. I'll show you how you're, I'm going to work for you. Why don't you do the dishes by yourself tonight? Okay, have a nice day. You know that's how it's, it's going to go down. Because no, that's how the family dynamic works. Well, that was Joseph's life, except it was on a much higher scale. Right? He told his brothers they hated him. Now, to top it all off, dad kind of had a soft spot for the bambino, the little baby, right? And so he get him a coat of many colors. Do you know how expensive that was? You have to take each strip of cloth, you had to dye it it's on its own on several times, then you had to, to let it dry, do it multiple times. That's very expensive to get all those colors, and then you had to have it sewn together. The guy was wearing a three piece suit. And every time he'd go around his brothers, all they had to do was look at that blinding rainbow and go, Man, that's a dysfunctional family. I don't know what dad was thinking, but he sent him one day to, to help uh, or to go check on the older brothers. Maybe he didn't know that the older brothers had this animosity. Maybe he did. I don't know. But Joseph is going up to the land of Dothan, right? Many things happen in Dothan. And if you go to Israel with me, I'll tell you about them, but not tonight. And so anyway, we, we go to Dothan. He's up to Dothan, you know, and, and they're, they're sitting there. And, and lo and behold, they can see this icon garment glistening, glittering in the sunlight. And they, you can almost hear and feel the fur get up on the back of their neck and their hands got to get sweaty and, and beads of start to rest, salivate like a rabid dog. He's mine. He's mine! Can you hear it? And all the 
this happens, like Joseph comes over and they grab him and throw him in the pit. Let's kill him! Let's kill him! No, no, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's see what happens. And, and, and the yelling and the screaming and the voices and Joseph. <gasps> they sit down to eat. Cold-hearted people. Finish eating. Hey, what's that over there? Well, that, that's a Midianite caravan. Oh, I got an idea. I think this was Judah's idea. I got an idea. Let's sell them. At least we get a little spending cash so that when we go by Quick Trip on the way home, we can get us one of those big gulps. <laughs> okay, okay, listen, that, that's not in the text. <laughs> I may have embellished it a little bit. And so they sell him, and so they get this coinage. And can you imagine that? Don't do this. No, stop. He's been crazy as long as we don't want to. This guy is nuts. We picked him up from some caravan. We got to get rid of him. How much do you want? Well, we'll give you a good deal. 30 piece? Good. That's it. Let's go. No, stop. I'm their brother. I'm their brother. No, stop. You shouldn't do this. What are you going to say to dad? No, no, no. Wow. How dramatic, huh? What a dysfunctional, total thing happened. Joseph didn't get up that morning thinking, well, this is the day I'm going to be sold to the caravan to Egypt. He didn't get up like that. He got up. Dad, Dad said, hey, you want to go check on your brother? Yeah, no problem. I'll be happy to. We'll take this food to him. Okay, I'm off. And they did the last thing he thought the day would end up with him in a pit and then on a camelback headed to Egypt. And what happens when he gets to Egypt? Well, he does. It's a totally new culture. It's a totally new people. It's a totally new place. He can't speak the language. And you know what? When you're sold for a human slave, you get paraded without any clothes on before everybody to see, to see if you're a fine specimen of meat and muscle. Turn around. And they look at him and they gawk at him. And uh, lo and behold, he's picked up by the chief executioner of the entire Egyptian empire, Gee, who do you who do you who owns you now? Just the executioner. Oh, sorry about that. Bummer of a birthmark, buddy. I mean, all you got to do is burn burn the fish, burn the Nile fish, and you're, <laughs> it's not getting demoted; it's getting executed. That's what he does for a living. And there's Joseph, and he's in that situation, and you would think, oh, where's the goodness of God? This is all tragedy. This is terrible. Uh, uh, a tragedy of, of of any sort of literature. Where's the goodness of God? Where's the goodness of God? And lo and behold, God's goodness shows up in the form of Joseph's job execution. And he is a master at organization. Now, I like to pretend I'm a master of organization. I am lousy. But back when my children were young, I did it like the Navy SEALs. Blue team, we need you over here. Red team, we need you over here. Green team, we need you doing push-ups. All right, everybody, go, 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 go. Actually, it wasn't like that at home. It was just slightly less. But Joseph was doing that. He said, okay, we need a group over here in the kitchen. We need a group over here. There. We need a group here. And Joseph was just moving around. The goodness of God was showing up. And guess who noticed? His boss. So he elevated him up in the home, and he began to run everything. And so did Mrs. Potter, for she noticed too. Now, she would, uh, appears to be much older than, than this young teenager. And she was on the hunt, on the prowl. 
And she would, she would go to him and, 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 and make, make offers of an insinuating nature and, and then very bold offers and, and, and he would say, no, no, no. And, and, and one day she came to him in a very, very blunt way and said to him, now this is the one we want to read. Verse 39, she said, chapter 39 of Genesis, she said, why don't, you, why don't, why don't we go ahead and, and spend a night together? I'm putting that very delicate because of the mixed audience. Why don't we go ahead and spend the night together? Now, Joseph had every reason, up, uh, every reason to just totally deny God and his goodness. But listen to Joseph's response. Chapter 39 and verse 9. It says this. There is no, or, uh, verse 8. Look, my master does not know what is with me in this house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house. You know what Joseph is saying? The goodness of God has struck my life in a terrible moment, and I will not refuse that goodness. And he says this, that nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know what he's saying? I remember the goodness of God, and the goodness of God has been in this awful situation, and I see it, and I believe it, and I therefore will be faithful to the end. That's what Joseph is saying. So he does the right thing, doesn't he? He turns away and runs out of the room. She grabs, grabs his little tunic. It falls off his body. She's a weird person. She stays in bed the whole day, crying and weeping. Oh, Mr. Potiphar, that slave you bought came into my room. I didn't know what to do. And I screamed, ah, and he ran out and he left his, he left his clothes here, see? What, what, do you, what, do you, what if you were Mr. Potiphar? Like, yeah, that's how it happened. I'm sure of it. So what can he do? He can't like embarrass his wife and so he has to believe that something must be true and I'm pretty sure he didn't believe it all because he just threw him in prison instead of removed his head. So he goes to prison for something Joseph didn't do. Where's the goodness of God in that? Have you ever been maligned in your job for something you didn't do? And now you're in prison for it in some sort of, some sort of uh, employment prison? Well, where's the goodness of God? Well, it shows up again in prison. And the, pre -chief, the chief warden there says, wow, you're pretty good at organizing the prisoners. And he becomes the head prisoner. And lo and behold, he begins to shepherd those prisoners. How do you know that? Because the baker and the butler had bad dreams and they were sort of depressed. And Joseph notices. He says, what are you guys down for? Oh, I couldn't sleep last night. You know, we had too much Arabic coffee and we had these bad dreams. I threw the Arabic coffee in there. It's not, it's not part of it. Did you catch that? Okay, good. <laughs> and so he had these bad dreams. And, and so what happened there is he said, now listen, uh, why don't you tell me the dreams? Because, you know, God is really the one who understands dreams. And so they began to tell him what happened. And, and, uh, and, and the, the, um, the, butler, or the baker says, well, you know, I had this dream. And uh, see, is that the, I have that right? No, the, the butler says, oh, I had this dream. And next thing I know, I'm re-pouring stuff into Pharaoh's cup and blah, blah, blah. And he says, oh, well, that means that you're going to be restored in so many days to the previous position. And Pharaoh will be happy with you. And the butler and the baker says, oh, well, that's nice. Well, I had a dream too. You know, I had a bad night too. And my dream was that all the birds, I had this this bread and the birds came and, and ate it out off, off the pan. And Joseph goes, oh, well, that's not so good. In three days, you're going to be like. <laughs> and guess what? In three days, it happened. 
And the, and the baker lost his life, and the butler got reestablished to where he was. But notice what he says in verse 40, in this uh, chapter 40, verse 8 of this whole interchange. Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. Guess what? Joseph is believing in the goodness of God, even when he went down another rabbit hole. Even when he was charged and convicted of something he didn't do. you got to believe in the goodness of God. Well, it was approximately 750 days later that Pharaoh's having a dream. It's a doozy. He has two of them, both somewhat similar. You know, the one with the, uh, uh, the, the cows that were healthy and emaciated and the, and the cows are, what did, what did my brother say this name this afternoon? Cachectic. And then the, the, the stalks of, of corn, you know, the ears of corn. I can just see it. It's really classic, isn't it? Pharaoh's all disturbed and he doesn't know what it means. And there's the butler and he's like pouring the, the, the wine into his goblet. And, 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 and Pharaoh is all troubled. And here's the butler. He goes, hey, boss. Back when you righteously threw me in the slammer, I knew a guy. And this guy in prison could interpret dreams. What do you think of that? Well, why didn't you say so? Well, you didn't ask, boss, but I could go get him because I know the guy. Well, go get the guy. And so they bring the guy in. It happens to be Joe two years later. Joe, I can just see him in the, in the prison cell. One more row, one more cross. He gets brought before Pharaoh. He gets cleaned up, shaven. They bathe him, poor guy. Get him before Pharaoh. Now you got to see this. He gets summoned up there. He gets in front of Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh says, I hear you're a guy that can interpret dreams. I've had a couple of dreams. Are you that guy? Very loose translation, obviously. Chapter 41. Chapter 41. Oh, wow. I'm over time. So sorry. So, Pharaoh, so Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Now, when you say God will give a Pharaoh an answer of peace, do you know Pharaoh was considered deity, a god of Egypt? So what he's really saying is, My God is bigger than you, O God, small g, and he will answer your questions for you. That's my God. Joseph has not failed to believe in the goodness of God. Even though he did the right thing twice and got forgotten twice. Well, you know what happened after that. I'll speed up the story. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, he interprets it. Pharaoh promotes him to be prime minister. Pharaoh becomes in charge of this incredible grain harvesting program. And eventually the brothers come up and they see Joseph. And Joseph goes through the charade to expose their hearts. And finally the brothers are to a point where they're so guilt, with their, uh, laden down with their guilt over what they did to Joseph many years ago. Joseph finally reveals himself to them. And when that happens... He says to them, he says, listen, listen, I'm Joseph. I'm the guy. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And in that one statement, he says to them, he says, listen, 
It doesn't matter the evil that I've experienced. God's goodness overpowers the evil. Such that when you get to, when you get to Genesis chapter 50, you have the brothers, Joseph's brothers, are afraid that Joseph will retaliate because dad is now gone. Jo- Jacob has now died. And they approach their brother, they approach the prime minister, Joseph, and they begin to say, please, don't hurt us. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 50. I got to get you to see this before we close tonight. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 21, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Do you see that? He knew his place before God, that God is good. And it's not Joseph who's good. It's God who's good. But as for you, you meant evil against me. Now listen, saints, you will all of your lives have things that happen to you which will be considered evil, which will be considered harmful for you, which will be considered trying to destroy you. And guess what? It will destroy you if you fail to believe in the goodness of God. And look what Joseph says. He says it this way. The God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. Do you see what I'm saying? He can take that stage for cancer and he can make it in such a way that it produces goodness which you can't imagine. And who would have thought 30 years ago, 20 years ago, that that little selling and brutality to Joseph would turn up to save their souls? Who would have thought that? No one would have thought that. Only God writes history like that. Only God rewrites what evil is intending to do. That's so godlike, isn't it? Because Satan comes and he steals the heart of the human beings and the human race, and God intervenes in such a way that he brings us and ushers us to the cross. And we get to the cross, and it looks like Satan's giving a death blow, and it's only a nick in his heel so that Christ rises from the dead, and we have before us the greatest feat of where he meant it for evil and God. God meant it for good, and the goodness of God prevails again. My beloved Christian, you should know that that's the very God that is your God, and you serve with all your soul, might, and strength. Fail not to believe in him. Fail not to believe in his goodness. You see, it's a matter of faith. Will you take everything that you have been through, every disrupt dysfunctional family moment every sort of crossword that you've heard every uh, 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 rubbing your fur the wrong way in the local church every embarrassment that you've had will you stop for a moment instead of holding it against your brothers as joseph could have done instead of blaming somebody else like joseph could have done instead of blaming god like many of us do today would you stop and trust in the goodness of god the goodness of of God that is promised to be as forever as his eternality. You see, it's a matter of faith. It's always been a matter of faith. The goodness of God is how he wants you to view life. He wants you to take your glasses and put them on and look at it through his eyes of goodness. You see, that's what makes the Christian tick differently. That's what allows you to not get all bent out of shape 
to be meek, as the scripture says, to hold your, your, your reaction back and wait for God's goodness and his rendering to come through because you can trust it. You can trust in his decisions. And you get to the New Testament, it says it this way, that the will of God is perfect, good, and acceptable. But most of us, are living a substandard life of joyless Christianity because we have refused to accept that God's will actually is good. But Steve, he divorced me. She left me. I don't feel goodness. No, no, you don't feel goodness. You believe in the God who is good. That's how it works. Let's pray. Oh God, I need you to give us more of your goodness. You see, Father, there is a goodness about you that allows the ministry of the Holy Spirit to extend far beyond the end of a message. It's where the Holy Spirit teaches in our sleep, in our waking hours, in our idleness, would you do that in your goodness for us? For I confess to you, I being one of the biggest uh, violators of this principle, I have many times failed to believe in your goodness. But your goodness is everywhere. Why can't I see that? Why can't I hold to that? Oh God, change us. Change us please. In Jesus' name.